Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 368. Welcome in. Uh, so most of today's episode is going to be a very, very long interview with a guy I love, Coach Dan Casey. He's a content creator. He's a football coach. Uh, we talk a lot about football. We talk a lot about like coaching philosophy. Uh, I'm also going to talk a little bit, little bit about Major League Baseball. Uh, I've got a big Ask Zach segment at the end. Uh, we'll talk about the NBA in a moment. There is a, a story I read this morning uh, that was pretty like, oh, wow, that's pretty crazy. Apparently, Tom Brady played all of last year with a torn MCL, which is a knee ligament. And uh, it, it was a partial tear to his MCL. And it's just pretty crazy. I mean, I, I, there's not much more to be said there. We don't need to do a whole topic about it. But if you already liked Tom Brady, now you're like, wow, okay. Not only is he incredibly committed, he's, he seems even more tough than we thought. And it kind of adds more fuel to the fire, that belief that, hey, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers could be better this fall than they were last year. I mean, they got a healthy quarterback again, right? right? Like Brady... Was hurt all year last year. They were coming off a weird offseason. They really came together clearly at the end of the year winning a Super Bowl. I imagine that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to run, be like a well-oiled machine all year. Just way more high-quality football, way more in sync. And I, part of that story is, hey, Tom Brady apparently, apparently played injured last year. Like, wow, <laughs> It didn't look hurt, but uh, I mean, it makes sense. I, not really. I mean, I, I don't know. I would have never known. We knew he had some kind of knee thing going on, but apparently, we now we know that was a partially torn MCL. He got surgery to repair that after the Super Bowl, which is just another mind-blowing, unbelievably impressive story about Tom Brady. Like, I just I said this on Instagram, my story the other day. The documentary that's going to get made about Tom Brady whenever he retires. Like, you thought that. The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan with seven-part documentary was interesting and good. I mean, I would watch a, how many, 20 years he's played this year? So I would watch a 22-season documentary about, you know, the college days leading up to his NFL career. I'd watch an episode about every single season he's played in the NFL. I mean, it'd be interesting to, like, his first year, his second year. Then an episode dedicated to the year he spent injured would be very fascinating. What did he do when he was injured? How did that reshape his entire frame of mind relating to football and playing quarterback. I mean, I, and then you could do, so you could do 22 episodes, one for every season he played one for his college year. And then one for his retirement, just appreciating looking back at the highlights. I mean, I, whenever Tom Brady does retire, I want a very, very indulgent in depth, like no shame. Just like, Hey, we are going all in on Tom Brady sharing every detail. I, I, I find it very fascinating. Of course, I'm a fan of Tom Brady, um, but I think people would watch that. And if anybody like I would kill to be included in there's a couple of questions I want to ask him. Like I would love to somehow this will never happen. But if I could be a part of that, I would give anything to be a part of making the Tom Brady documentary. Because there are certain things like I would love to ask him, what was that like? How did you feel when you were, at, you know, when when they talked about, hey, you fell off a cliff. Remember when people he was in New England that final year and everyone was saying he was awful and he clearly believed in himself still. That's just a fascinating... I hope people ask him about that. So, um, man, I just someday hope we get a candid, honest Tom Brady documentary detailing all the stuff we... Like, we didn't even know 
he tore his MCL. Imagine how much stuff we just don't know about the guy that goes on behind the scenes, positive and, and, and frankly, probably some negative too that we don't know. So I, I don't know, man. I, I these these documentaries. I'd love to get one about Tom Brady, and I'd love to get a whole docu series detailing his career uh, all the way through. Okay, I want I want to shift to the NBA. The NBA Finals have been amazing. So. We are four games into the NBA Finals, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks against the Phoenix Suns, and oh my goodness, man, it's such unbelievably good basketball. We've got a series tied now, two games to two. I'm having so much fun. Like, If you're not watching the NBA Finals, you're making a massive, massive mistake. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, Both teams have won two games at home. Game three was a must-win game. In Milwaukee, the Bucks had to win. They could not afford to go down in the series three games to zero. They won game three. Then in game four, Milwaukee won a really tough, intense, physical, hard-fought game. Giannis has been amazing. He had 41 points in game three, had a really good performance in game four. Uh, and then Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday really, really stepped up. I watched game one and two and was like, man, these guys got to give you more. I mean, they... Milwaukee needs more from Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, and they both delivered. I mean, Chris Middleton had 40 points in Game 4. Uh, Drew Holiday had 21 points in Game 3, three three-pointers. By the way, Drew Holiday's played phenomenal defense throughout the whole series. Uh, and the Bucks made a big change where they're cutting to the basket when the defense collapses on Giannis in the lane. And what it does is forces the defense to make a decision. You know, if Bobby Portis cuts to the basket... As the defense makes that wall around Giannis, he finds a pass to, to Bobby Portis, finds easy dunk. It's created a lot of easy layups, both for Giannis and for other people cutting to the basket. Uh, now, one of the highlights of this series, just my, one of my favorite matchups throughout the NBA Finals, has been Devin Booker on offense against Drew Holiday on defense. It's been unbelievable. Uh, Drew Holiday has been putting so much pressure on Devin Booker. Every possession, contesting every shot, making everything difficult, which... Hey, when Devin Booker nails a shot, like on the move at the, you know, at the elbow, you're like, wow, okay, that's an unbelievable, especially when you watch that low angle, it looks unbelievable. But Drew Holiday won in game three, early off, it threw Devin Booker out of rhythm. Devin Booker started cold. He could not recover. Uh, Book had an awful night just in game three. It was just, it was, it was terrible. It had 10 points, was three for 14 shooting. Uh, and it's funny, like, I look back at that comment where somebody compared him to Kobe. And I remember saying, like, look, Devin Booker's awesome. He's not Kobe. Uh, it's not fair to compare anybody to Kobe. And I, Kobe had bad nights, but, like, in the NBA Finals, you can't have a night like that where you just go completely cold. And I, I just, I don't know, this matchup between Drew Holiday and Devin Booker, this young star, this great defender, it's so much fun for me. Uh, now, I have been seeing commenters on YouTube especially saying that, you know, these finals are boring and awful, and the NBA, it's just not what it used to be, and this and that. And to me, to call this series not interesting is just wrong. I'm like, I don't know how, are you insane? Like, what are you watching? Clearly, you're not watching if you're saying that the Bucks and Suns matchup isn't interesting or isn't exciting. And it's kind of funny. These might be the same people who, when LeBron or Steph Curry were in the finals every year, it's just boring, it's not fun. It's like, well... Now we don't have Steph Curry. Now we don't have LeBron. And you're still saying the same thing. So basically my point is you can't win it for the NBA. The the NBA Finals have been amazing this year. Yeah, it's two smaller market teams, but who cares? It's good basketball. 
And and honestly, if you can't enjoy this series, frankly, you're just not really a basketball fan. Because I don't know how you look at this series tied to two great matchups everywhere and don't go, man, this is just wonderful, wonderful basketball. Because it is. It's phenomenal, phenomenal basketball to watch. And and I got to say, Phoenix really dominated this series for the first nine quarters. Like, you know, all of game one, all of game two, the first quarter of game three. They had the lead at the end of the first quarter in game three. And then things just turned upside down. Milwaukee had a dominant second quarter in game three. And things changed so quickly. I mean, the Bucks had a 15-point lead at halftime. Then the Suns did close the gap in game three. They had a the Suns were down four points late in the third quarter, I guess mid-third quarter in game three. And then Milwaukee went on a 16-point run to take a massive lead. All the while that Devin Booker is having that terrible game in game three. Now he bounced back in game four, Devin Booker. I guess on offense, scoring-wise, he had 42 points in Game 4. He didn't have a great game in Game 4, though. He got into foul trouble early. Uh, probably should have fouled out. The refs really missed a call there. Uh, Chris Paul had a bad game in Game 4. Only 10 points, a couple turnovers. Uh, as a team, the Suns had 17 turnovers in Game 4. And it's it's pretty crazy. Watching Game 3 and 4, you're like, this is just not the same team we saw in Games 1 and 2. And the Suns appeared to struggle as the games got chippier and more physical. And then credit to Milwaukee, man. The Bucks deserve a ton of credit where Chris Middleton scored when it mattered. Giannis was incredible, not only scoring inside, but he had an amazing block on seven-footer DeAndre Ayton where you're like, that's one of, if not the best block I've ever seen, it's one of the best blocks. It's up there with that. There's been a debate everywhere between LeBron and Giannis, which block is better. Um, I think because of who it is, DeAndre Ayton, that block is unbelievable. To block a seven-foot guy the way he did, and like, and, and not only to do it, but have the confidence and, the, frankly, the balls to go try to make that play, to try to block DeAndre Ayton in that moment near the end of the game. To me, that makes it—it's the best block I've ever seen. Like, skill-wise, it's just unbelievable. You're like, I—jeez, man, that's a play you don't see every day. Uh, so, look, man, it's been a fun series. The NBA Finals have been phenomenal. Uh, I highly, highly recommend anybody who's interested, you should watch. The NBA Finals are phenomenal. Uh, Game 5 is on Saturday in Phoenix. I have no idea who's going to win the NBA title. I I really don't know. I am now convinced after watching Game 3 and 4, it's going to be a seven-game series. Big shout-out to Milwaukee. They made the necessary adjustments, did things they had to do to keep things competitive and interesting. And I think what we're going to see is probably Phoenix wins in Game five at home Milwaukee wins in game six and we go back to Phoenix for game seven and the question will be can Milwaukee win on the road in Phoenix I I, I'm pretty sure they can uh I mean Chris Paul has to play better it's just a really uh, this matchup I, I don't know how you could possibly say it's not interesting or compelling or good because it's so so good and so compelling and so exciting uh I also want to give a shout out to second year forward for the Suns Cam Johnson he had 14 points in Game 3, 10 points in Game 4. He had a big dunk on P.J. Tucker in Game 3. He had a block in Game 4, the third quarter of Game 4. So big dunk, a big block. Cam Johnson's one of those guys who I I really want to see how he evolves. He's only in year two. Like, what's he going to do as he gets more mature and his body grows more and he has more playing time? Uh, coming off the bench, he's been really, really exciting to watch. Cam Johnson is awesome. Uh, the refs are a talking point from Game 4 as well, where I, I think both fan bases walked away from that game 
upset. That's why I haven't talked about too much about the refs because it's like, well, I thought, frankly, the refs were missing calls for both the Bucks and the Suns. And so both fan bases walked away probably frustrated, probably upset. Uh, Milwaukee got the win. But again, the series is tied 2-2. Two to two. You should watch the NBA Finals have been phenomenal. And I cannot recommend enough. You should watch. You should. If you're not watching, you're missing out. And if you think it's not good basketball, you're just not a basketball fan. And the NBA Finals have been phenomenal this year. All right, guys. Uh, let's shift gears to baseball. I want to talk about the MLB All-Star Game. Uh, I hyped it up so much. And so I feel like I should do a follow-up to what happened and how I felt about it. Look, the All-Star Game just further cemented what I already knew and believed, which is that the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is the best All-Star Game in all of American professional sports. It's better than the NBA All-Star Game. It's better than the NFL's Pro Bowl. Baseball does it right. It's competitive. It's fun. People are trying to beat each other. You had bases loaded, bottom of the eighth. Like, the NL was trying to score, trying to get back in the game. Chris Bryant was up, like... There are real, actual moments in this game where you're like, it's tense, it's interesting, uh, it feels like it, it It doesn't matter, it's an exhibition game, but it still feels like people are trying, like the, I forget the name of the guy getting the save, the Australian dude for the American League. He was trying, like he wanted to get that save, he got a strikeout, it's like, keep that ball, I want that. These are special moments to people, and they care, and it really, it comes through. The American League won 5-2, to two. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit a home run, he was the all-Star Game MVP. It's pretty cool. I just I can't recommend enough. If you get a chance to watch the MLB All-Star Game next year, make that happen because it really is a very, very good competitive time with people who are the best in the world at what they do, doing what they're best at. Like It's just the best all combined on one field. It's really, really fun. Um, I became a big fan of Juan Soto during this game. Kind of the whole weekend. You know, He plays for the Nationals and... Uh, in the home run derby, he hit a ball. He hit a home run 520 feet. And I'm like, oh, boy, this guy's got a lot of power. But he's not just a power hitter. I really came to love his approach, and I got to watch him in the All-Star game. Uh, he got down in a count 0-2, zero balls, two strikes. And so he widened his stance, which I guess allows him to sink down and kind of shrink the strike zone, make the strike zone even smaller. He dug in, and he battled, and he fought all the way back from down 0-2, you know, fouling the ball off, keeping the, the at-bat alive, and eventually drew a walk from down 0-2 in an All-Star game, got on first base because he walked. It's like, this is just an unbelievable, really, really cool at-bat. And I just was like, man, this is super impressive. I walked away like going, Juan Soto is a really, really good baseball player. I'm just excited to watch him moving forward in the future. He's a guy that wasn't really on my radar. I'm not the biggest. I admit this, right? Like, I try to tell you what I really am. Like, I genuinely love basketball. I genuinely love the NFL. I genuinely love Formula One. I really love baseball. I don't follow baseball very much. I don't, I'm not that engaged with it. And so uh, getting to know Juan Soto a little bit this weekend was pretty cool. Uh, I also became a big fan of the Tampa Bay Rays manager, Kevin Cash. He wore that. The cool short sleeve sweatshirt. That's like my favorite look. And also, by the way, the most comfortable article of clothing human beings have ever made is the, the cutoff short sleeve sweatshirt. I wear that all the time. I have like four of them. It really is amazing. And I, I saw Kevin Cash wearing one of those. I'm like, hey, 
In my book, you wear that, you're cool. So I <laughs> I don't know anything about Kevin Cash. Dude is tan. It looks like he's in the sun a lot. I was like, hey, that's hope I look like him when I'm, him when I'm old. And uh, the game was fun. The, the National League scored on a wild pitch. Again, it was bases loaded, bottom of the eighth. It was competitive. It was interesting. Uh, one kind of rough moment was, I mean, they kept trying to do player interviews during the game. And it's tough. They're hard to execute any kind of... Anytime you see a, a, an interview during the game, the XFL tried to do this. It's hard, man. It's gimmicky. It's difficult. Players are trying to do their thing, and then you're asking them questions. And I mean, you literally have guys taking at-bats like you know, Joe Buck's asking them, hey, what are you? What pitch are you expecting? And they're like, uh, fastball? Like, I don't... I'm trying to bat. Why are you trying to talk to me? Plus, it's not like Joe Buck is the most easy person in the world to have a conversation with. And so I thought that was maybe poorly executed. I, I don't know. That's not even the right way to put it because they tried. And I, as much as I wasn't like super into the conversations where I felt like guys were kind of phoning it in, giving boring answers and doing the best they could, it's also like I get why the MLB is trying to do that. So on one hand, I'm, I'm very skeptical of that. But the reason why the MLB is putting a microphone on everybody, trying to have interviews, trying to talk to the players, is because they're trying to build – they're stars. They're trying to say, hey, here are, we got a bunch of new all-stars. Let's get them on the mic. Let's share their personality a little bit. And so as much as it was forced, because it definitely was, it also made sense to me. I went, okay, like I get it. And I, even though it was, it could have been different. I, I just, I understand where baseball was coming from there. Uh, now the home run derby was fun too. There was in fact like a two round, a two round, was it two rounds or a, I guess a two series tiebreaker between Shohei Otani and Juan Soto where Shohei tied him and then he tied him again and they they had eventually had to do a swing off where you get three pitches and uh, or I guess you get three swings and if you swing and hit three home runs the other guys hit three more home runs Juan Soto hit a home run on all three of his swings Shohei could not so Juan Soto advanced Shohei Otani did not very, very cool. I went like, this is just a fun for, I love, love home run derbies. It's very fun to watch. Now, knowing what I know after the fact, I, I got to tell you, I definitely overhyped Shohei Otani in the home run derby. I apologize. I was like, I was excited. Like, I want, I, and I did watch for Shohei. It was pretty crazy. I saw somebody out there, Stephen A. Smith said that Shohei's bad for baseball because he can't speak English. I'm like, uh, I watch baseball because of Shohei Otani, so that's ridiculous. Um, but if I could go back in time and make a different prediction, based on what I know now, uh, I would obviously pick Pete Alonso to win. It made total sense why Pete Alonso won and probably should have been the favorite. He won last year, which I didn't realize going in. I just haven't been following baseball very closely for the last couple of years. Uh, Pete Alonso dominated, man. He was relaxed. He was having fun, like bobbing his head, just like really hanging out, chilling, doing his thing. And I want to give credit to a YouTube commenter, Soy Sasuke. Soy Sasuke, I think is how you say his fake imaginary YouTube name. Uh, but he called it. He commented that Pete Alonso or Gallo would win the Home Run Derby. He said the Home Run Derby was about stamina it's more of a stamina battle than it is a skill challenge and bigger guys usually win hey soy Sasuke, you nailed it you made a prediction before it happened you were totally right and uh, it's totally true like matt olson launched the longest home runs it felt like i'm like matt olson pulling the ball into left into right field you're like man that's just an unbelievably deep home run 
but he couldn't keep it up. So it's not about power in the home run derby. It's how long can you sustain your power and how, how long can your stamina last? And Pete Alonso, I mean, really the question is, can anybody beat Pete Alonso next year? If he does, in fact, do it, he's won two years in a row. It'd be cool to see him defend his title a third time. I'm all in. That sounds really, really fun. And, uh, I mean, all in all, the All-Star game was awesome. Again, I can't recommend it enough. Shohei Otani was a leadoff batter. He also was the starting pitcher for the American League. It's a manufactured moment, like, for sure. They definitely were like, hey, let's put Shohei there. Let's pitch him. Let's do that. They put him front and center. But also, like... Even though they chose to put him in those situations and manufactured the moment, I mean, it's not entirely. I mean, it's still like he has to have the talent to do both things, and he does. So it's still very, very special. I, I can't really think of anybody in since Babe Ruth, maybe, who could have genuinely been an all-star batting and pitching. So even though they made sure to put Shohei front and center, the leadoff batter, the starting pitcher. It's not like they forced it into a moment where he wasn't deserving because it's pretty amazing we have a guy who is capable genuinely of leading off as a batter and being the starting pitcher at the same time. And so, yeah, the All-Star game was awesome. I really, really, uh, I recommend it. It was a good time all around, and I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Like next year, let me be clear. If If you have a chance to watch it next year, you should, and if you didn't this year, I think you missed out. I think it's a good time. It's good baseball. It's really fascinating. It's very, very competitive, and I recommend it. And and I got it. I'm also man. I'm excited for the MLB playoffs. I don't know how much of them I will watch this year. It's during football season. I gotta focus on football, but I love a good baseball game. I, I really do. It's it's a sport I love that I can't follow as closely as I would like because it's nearly impossible to follow, but. Hey, shout out to baseball. Uh, when you get a chance to watch a game, they are really good. There's a lot of young talent, and I had a good time watching. Okay, now let's shift gears to an interview I did with uh, a buddy of mine, Coach Dan Casey. He's awesome. I'm not going to introduce it too much. I talk about him a lot at the beginning. Have a good time, and uh, enjoy the interview. Joining me now is Dan Casey. Coach, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man, I'm a big fan. I'd like to introduce you if possible, because there's, I think, Go three it, things that I think provide context for this conversation. You've been a high school football coach, you're a YouTuber at Coach Dan Casey, and you're a co-host of the Coaches Collective uh, podcast. You've interviewed guys like Pat Fitzgerald, uh, the coach at Northwestern, Mike Kafka, quarterback coach at Kansas City, also former NFL quarterback, uh, Hal Mummy, Jamie Chadwell from uh, Coastal Carolina, and I... I'm just curious how you got into making content as a coach. It's so, it's an interesting transition, but I think you no, make totally. such interesting, good content. No, I appreciate that. Well, you know, the the Genesis story, I've, you know, every time I talk to people about this, like, I would say the majority of people that know who I am at all is probably from Twitter, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. That was kind of how I, how I got my start. That's how I found the, you. The, yeah, the reason I the reason I started a Twitter account, is, it's kind of funny, Um is I got a head high school football coaching job when I was 24 years old. Um, and I played college football. I was a defensive player. And when I transitioned into coaching, I decided to coach on the offensive side of the ball. And what you realize pretty quickly is no matter, I, I mean, I spent 18 years of my life playing the game. And when I started coaching, I realized immediately, like I knew nothing, especially on offense. Um, like I, I could put together a defense, but I knew nothing on offense. And so 
I was in an interesting situation. I was at a smaller private school. And so I wanted to really dive in and learn a lot. And I didn't have the luxury of going down the hall to a seasoned offensive coordinator and saying, all right, talk me through, you know, this offensive stuff. Or uh, I just didn't have a lot of coaches around me in the building. Uh, My first year, I had uh, a coach that helped me a lot. And then he ended up moving on to another school. And so I was I was really just like in the dark. Um, and, and I was looking for ways to connect with other coaches. And so for me, Twitter was that kind of like connection point, obviously being a younger coach and being more familiar with, um, technology and social media, I I was looking to connect, but I was also looking like one of my kind of life philosophies is the idea of, uh, it's kind of a comedian idea of like writing on stage. Um, so like a lot of comedians will play at smaller venues and kind of like try out their stuff. And if it plays well, like, okay, that'll make the Netflix special, right? Um, But, you know, you throw away the stuff that doesn't work. And so for me, like, posting plays on Twitter was kind of like me testing out, like, presenting ideas uh, to other coaches and ultimately to my players. And so kind of seeing what I liked, what I didn't like, trying to get people's advice. And early on, I would post stuff and I would be like, this is a really cool power play from, you know, Washington or something. And coaching Twitter would jump all over me and be like, that's a counter. <laughs> and so you you just learn a lot from guys like football coaching Twitter will not let you be wrong for very long. Um, and so, you know, I just decided to have thick skin about it and keep posting stuff every day and, and trying to learn. And I, so many generous coaches throughout the years have reached out to me and offered to sit down with me and talk to me. And I've just made so many great connections through, you know, Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, it's, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but like it's, it's become such a great networking platform for so many coaches, I think. Yeah. I'm curious when you post, like you have that great video, I forget the, the actual title, but it's like, you should steal Lincoln Riley's, I think something concept. <laughs> Is yeah, that yeah. you find that you're like you're genuinely excited? I mean, it comes across in video like this is cool, and you want to share totally. with the world. Is that genuine? Like you totally. just want to share? Yeah, man. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. It's like football is. It's so hard to trace the history of like football plays in particular because everyone's going to claim it, and football is kind of this like oral tradition, oral history tradition where not a lot gets written down because it's happening in real time. And so you might have a coach write a book here and there, but for the most part, like you just have to go back and watch watch the games. And I love that. Like, I think I'm a little bit of a football historian at heart as well. Like I just love diving into old stuff and, um, seeing how it comes back around. And so for me, like I've always kind of felt like the best coaches aren't coming up with something brand new. They're kind of curating all the best stuff. And Lincoln Riley is obviously a perfect example. And so I'm like, you know, he's not necessarily reinventing football, but he's taking the best of all these different systems and synthesizing it. And that's what makes him really, I think, probably the best play caller in football right now. Um, But for me as a coach, I'm like, shoot, I'm going to steal too. Like if I like something, it's going in my playbook and trying to figure out what works for me, what works for our team, most of all. Um, And and that's that's when football gets fun is you get to you get to learn from so many different people and see um, what's working and what's not. And you can kind of take what you want and leave the rest. It's a weird aside, but did you see the video Brett Coleman made about the history of the spread offense? He's got like the oh, yeah. the oh, whiteboard. Yeah. He looks like Charlie Day from uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got all like this like long string of. I love that kind of stuff. The history. No, of I it. mean, yeah, it, it, Brett. Brett's awesome. I mean, I, I think there's such a what what I love and appreciate so much is like I've learned a ton about football from guys that have never coached a day um, mm. because there's people that are willing to study the game, and I think with the kind of especially during covid like there was this movement of football to a lot like a lot of things were moving online 
And so you just saw like different voices pop up that were really, really just had some poignant insights and um, really drew out some like really great stuff. And so I, I, I don't know, I think it like leveled the playing field a lot. I think football for the longest time was so hierarchical where it was like, okay, you get in as a GA and you climb the ladder and you have to kind of sit under these people for years and years and years, and then you maybe get your shot. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways the digital revolution in football is kind of leveling the playing field and saying, man, there's a lot of really smart coaches that are coaching at tiny little schools in rural America. And they they study the game like crazy. And they honestly could probably be coaching D one right now. It's just circumstantial that they're at a small little school. So I don't know, it just opened my eyes to how many just smart people are out there that study the game and know a lot and um, are willing to share that. And I think the, the willingness to share, I think is the most important thing. Like that's what makes football football is like the willingness to, to share insight. You tweeted something the other day you tweeted. I think I saw an Instagram story actually, but you said, uh, I don't know who needs to hear this today. You need to punt less. What's the story there? <laughs> yeah. So when I first got into coaching, um, you know, I think you always think, you know, more than you do when you start out. I think there's mm-hmm. kind of this, like this early bias where, you know, you learn a little bit, have a little bit of success. And you're like, I, I figured everything out. Um, and so I, there have been a couple times in my coaching career where I've had a conversation with an older coach and they disagree with me on something. And I kind of go back to the drawing board and, and learn something through that conversation. And I actually, when I first got started out, had a conversation with Kevin Kelly, who's now the coach at, um, at Presbyterian college. He just got hired there, but he was at Pulaski Academy in, in Arkansas. And he's kind of world famous as the coach that never punts and always onside <laughs> kicks and, mm. And, and honestly, like he, especially at the high school level, he had so much data backing up what he was doing. Like he wasn't just, it wasn't a publicity stunt. Like he had studied the game and said for what we're doing and the type of school we're at, um, it just, it just works. We're not going to punt unless it's like dire straits. We're always going to onside kick and give ourselves a chance to get the ball back. And I was just kind of taken by that philosophy. And, you know, for me coming from that defensive perspective, I knew that, it caused so much stress for me when I had a feeling that the offense was almost always going to use four downs. So when we would play mm-hmm. these, we, and, and again, it's not necessarily what you think of like modern innovative spread offense, but when we would play these flex bone teams, um, we played a team called Lenore Ryan back when I was at Davidson and Mike Houston was the head coach. who's actually now at East Carolina and they're not running the flex bone anymore, but they ran it back at LR and they would always go for it on fourth down because they're a flex bone team and they would use four downs to get first downs. And it would just wear on you defensively and not just physically, but mentally because you had to be engaged for four downs. And so I was just like, I, I want to put that stress on the defense. So if we're kind of on the plus side of our own 40 yard line, like consider it four down territory and we're going to be aggressive. And it, we, it, it was, it was not only kind of from Kevin Kelly and kind of my own experience, but then also instilling that kind of sense of urgency in our players that like, we are not trying to give the ball away. Um, we're trying to attack. And I think our, um, the teams that I coached at St. David's, I think were really, um, kind of passionate about that. Like they, they would be shocked if I sent the punt team out. They're like, are you, are you serious? Even on like fourth and 12, they're like, what? <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those things where I'm not totally against punting by any means, but I think just football is more fun when it's being played aggressively and being coached aggressively and played aggressively. And, um, I think the players have a lot of fun with it too. So, um, that, that's kind of where that came from. It's kind of tongue in cheek, but I, I really do believe it. I think, I, I think you should keep the punt team off the field as much as possible. 
It reminds me of the NBA player who used to shoot free throws underhanded and made like every single one every time. <laughs> and it's like he he'll, he'll argue like it's against human nature, but it it works better. Like statistically, it's yes. backed up that it, it it's more successful. No, I mean I I just think to your point, why aren't guys that are really struggling at the line just trying it? Like, what do you have to lose if you're shooting thirty percent from the line or forty percent from the line? What do you have to lose? And I think I think more football coaches at lower levels kind of take that "what do I have to lose" mentality. And I think the higher you get when you're coaching, you know, Power Five or NFL, you're you're de incentivized to take those risks because you know if you go for it on fourth down and don't get it, you have a whole fan base coming back on you, and that, you could end up developing a reputation and getting fired. Whereas you're, if you're a high school coach, you know, obviously that that'll happen some, but um, you, there's a little less of a spotlight on you. And so I think in some ways, especially, I think particularly in the NFL, there's kind of this um, self-preservation um, where, and, and you're never going to get fired for doing what everybody else is doing. Uh, mm. I mean, not that you never will, but yeah, you're less likely to, to get canned for doing what everybody else is doing. And so I think there's, a little bit of that self-protection at higher levels, but and and I I just think there people need to push the boundaries more, and um, I think it's better for the game, and that's why I really do believe what Andy Reid says, where he says like all this, all the good stuff is trickling up, like it's not like high schools aren't taking NFL stuff um, necessarily. I mean, obviously there's some phenomenal stuff happening at the professional level, but um, yeah, that's one of the things Andy Reid says is that a lot of the innovation in the game comes from the high school level, gets to the college level, and then it's tested and proven by the time the NFL adopts it. Well, look at Gus Malzahn. He started coaching in Arizona or in, sorry, in Arkansas where he took a bunch of Correct. risks. And so you're, I, I agree with you. What you're saying is high school football and lower levels allow you to take more risks where if you're, you know, Doug Peterson got run out of Philadelphia by the fan base. And right, if Urban right. Meyer drafts Zach Wilson instead of Trevor Lawrence and then fails the, the fan base is going to come down way harder. For sure. I'm curious, because there, there was one thing you have to answer to in high school football, which is parents. How do you, because <laughs> sure. that, I, I, I've seen those parents. I played high school football, I played college football. Even in, even in lower levels of college football, there are parents who are really aggressive. And how do you, how do you manage those relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the first and foremost, the, a lot of parent coach relationships, um, the foundation of that is, is ultimately the, the relationship that you have with the player. Mm. Um, and I, and I think, you know, a lot can happen between a parent and a coach, but ultimately if a player feels like you have their best interests in mind, um, I, I think that softens that relationship with parents. Um, and so there's always going to be concerns about playing time and all these different things. But I think ultimately, uh, the approach that I've taken is I am always trying to put players in the best position to succeed um whatever that looks like like there have been kids that have that have played for me that weren't necessarily particularly talented but one of the things that i think separates football from maybe a lot of other sports is that you can still have a meaningful experience on a football team even if you're not getting the ball 20 times a game uh, because there's opportunities for camaraderie and and one of the things that we kind of lay as a foundation in our program and every team that I coached is the idea of human performance kind of being the baseline of like everything we do and so you you will be guaranteed to improve personally uh, as an athlete so you're, you're going to get better in the weight room and and uh, you're going to get faster um, we're going to push you in all facets of life and so maybe you don't see quite the production on the field that you hoped for 
but you're going to walk away from that experience, hopefully being a better person and being a better player. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the, one of the ways to, to kind of handle those things. Um, there's always going to be someone that's not happy with what you're doing. I mean, that's just part of human nature, I think. Uh, but I think if you, you kind of set that foundation of like, I am to the best of my ability trying to do what's best for each individual player and trying to develop a relationship with that player. Um, I, I think that's what leads to a lot of successful um, coaching runs. Yeah, when you're coaching in, in high school, how do you define success? Because there's so much more than beyond winning and losing. Is is because like if you're Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, you have to win, and that's the number one part of your job. But there For is sure. more uh, when you're coaching at, at a different level. What's your philosophy there? Yeah, I mean, I I think each team is so unique. Um, you know, and so I think more than anything, particularly as a high school coach, because there's always going to be those years that you have crazy talent and you could kind of call whatever you want and you're, you're going to be successful. And there's other game, other years where you may do your best coaching job ever and run a 500 record. And so I think for us as, as coaching staffs, every time we would talk about this, we would kind of say, what does it look like for us to achieve our potential and maybe even surpass our potential to a degree um, with this football team? And, and it really kind of it bleeds into every aspect of what you're doing. It's not just what you're doing on the field. It's also, you know, how do we reach our potential in, e in each of these areas? And, you know, I think, I think that's kind of an honest conversation that a coaching staff has to have each year of what does it look like to, to reach our potential? So for like, for example, um, I've had teams that were really deep. We had a lot of kids, we could run tempo offense, we could score a lot of points, have a lot of fun. Um, and I've had other teams that were a little leaner where we had less players and less depth and we were playing, you know, both ways and stuff like that. And so from a, from a schematic perspective, it changes what you do. So you can't always, you know, kind of try and ram that uh, square peg in a round hole. You have to say what works for these, this team to achieve their potential. And so a lot of work goes in on the back end of saying, from a schematic perspective, what's going to help this team achieve their potential from a uh, human performance and training perspective, what is, what's it going to look like? Do we need to do more or less conditioning, more or less speed training, more or less weightlifting? Like, do we have to practice more? Do we have to practice less? Like you're, you're, you're taking into account all of those things. And ultimately, you know, this is, this is, I think the, the biggest thing that allowed for like any amount of success I had as a coach was I, the promise I made the athletes was that I would never waste their time. Mm. And so we, we practiced shorter than maybe any team in the country. Cause I said, if you commit to putting everything you have into this 90 minute practice, you're done, you go home it's it. And the amount of focus we had was increased because we weren't keeping them on the field for three hours and we weren't, uh, you know, laboring in some of the ways that I think a lot of programs labor. And so I think it's interesting, like there were teams that, you know, we said, you know, we're never going to waste your time. And then they come to me saying, coach, you know, I think we need to work on this a little bit more. I think, you know, I, I want to have a, have a lunch with the, the offensive line to go through some film stuff. And when they started, wanting to do extra, that's when I knew I had a team that was going to really rise to the occasion. Um, mm. and, and I think when, whenever, as coaches, I think a lot of times we try to uh, almost mandate, like, you need to do extra, you need to do more, on top of all the more and extra we're already doing. And when you can get a team to say, of their own will and accord, we want more, that's when you have a team that I think is going to really be successful. And successful may not look like winning a state championship. It may look like achieving their potential. Um, but I think to get that buy-in, it was promising, especially this generation, never going to waste your time. Uh, 
because I, I value you as a person and I value other interests you may have. And so in order for you to be a part of this team, I want you to be fully here when you're here and then enjoy life when you're not. I love the philosophy of I'm going to, we're going to do less, but we're going to be, it's going to be amazing, really good reps every time yes. we're fully focused. Less is more quality over quantity. Correct. Correct. My wife's a, a graphic designer. And so I've learned a lot just kind of life philosophy stuff from her. Um, and she obviously like minimalism is kind of a word that gets thrown around the design community in terms of like, you know, not, not being overbearing with, um, you know, a logo or something like that. But really, you know, the, the idea of less, but better is something that like, I really took, took to heart. Um, and I, one of the pieces of advice I always give to coaches that are kind of starting out as offensive coordinators or something like that, I always say, install less than you think you need and rep it more than you think you need to. And I think that's just a, a good philosophy to have. Like, you know, as coaches, we always want to do more. We always like that. We're always going to have this desire to do more. And I, I had a really interesting conversation with Phil Longo, the offensive coordinator at North Carolina. And he said, I have my coach's playbook, which is about a thousand pages <laughs> and my player's playbook, which is about, you know, 200 or 150 pages. And so like as coaches, we're always going to have, a deep reservoir of stuff we like, but for that particular team, what do they need and how can I deliver it in a way that works for them? So I love the idea of a coach's playbook versus a player's playbook. And um, if you can pare down and get the most meaningful stuff in there, that's, I think that's when you're going to have a team that really gets it and is able to execute. I remember my, in my high school days, we had for, we eventually added more, but for like the first four weeks, we'd run off outside zone and inside zone. And that's it. Because yeah. the offensive line's right. got enough to think about, learning where to totally. go, what to do, all totally. your steps. And once you master that, then you can graduate on to the next level of stuff. For sure. Um, I, I look back. I had such a good group of high school coaches, man. I think I had like a college-level staff coaching totally. me in high school. Um, did huge. you have any other advice for young coaches, man, that you I, – I, I always will never forget what you said just now. And I, I've heard it. you say it before that – install less than you think and rep it more than you think. But yeah. is there, is there anything else you would say to young coaches? Man, I, I think it, it, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on young coaches to learn a lot fast. And mm. I would just say like, be patient with yourself because what you want is not necessarily just to like stuff all this knowledge in your head so that you know everything. I think more than anything, you want that, that knowledge to get like into the deeper part of your brain where it becomes like, second like second nature um and so like take the slow approach to learning the game uh take your time because i think the coaches that feel like they have to master something in a couple weeks those are the coaches that they don't really have answers and can't think creatively they're trying to like basically memorize and memorize the answers to the test and regurgitate the answers to the test and i think the best coaches are the ones that um maintain the creativity and the problem solving nature of of coaching. And I always tell people like coaching is problem solving for your athletes. Like that's what it is. And so if you're having an issue, don't go to the, don't always go to the manual and say, all right, well, now that we installed Mike Leach's offense, like what is, what does Mike Leach do here? It's like, well, you may need to get creative with the, the particular player you have as, as a slot receiver. How are they going to make sure they get the timing down on this route? And, and trying to understand those things and problem solve for your athletes, I think, is, is so crucial. Um, so that, that's a big piece of advice I have is, like, take the, take the slow approach to 
um, to learning the game because the deeper that knowledge embeds in you, the more creative you can be and, and the more the more you're able to see the game and solve problems for your athletes instead of saying like, okay, they're in cover three and here's a cover three beater and this is always going to work. Like theoretically on paper, yes, but like it may not work with the players you have. Like you may not have the arm strength to get that throw um, to the field. And so there, there's things like that where you just have to think about like how can I make the game work for my players? Like that's that's the goal of a coach. It's not it's not the theory, it's the practice. Do you have a favorite coach or a couple favorites? So you look around and go, like that guy, I love watching him, I love his style. Oh man. That's a great question because there's there's so many guys that I that I admire. Um and, and you know, I think it's hard not to uh you all, you obviously have biases toward coaches that maybe you observe the most or spend the most time around. And, uh, I mean, of course, everybody loves Andy Reid. Everybody loves Lincoln Riley. Like, I don't know those guys personally necessarily, but there have been some coaches that I've interacted with um, and just been really impressed with not only the way they run their offense, but the way they run their program. And um, it, actually, to be honest with you, one of uh, the, the head coach at my alma mater right now, Davidson College, a guy named Scott Abel, um, is just a coach I really admire. Uh, I think I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, my brother actually worked for the program for a bit. So I kind of got a behind the scenes look at kind of what he's about. He runs a spread triple option. And I think he, he just, it, he's, he's a problem solver. Um, uh, like he, he really gets that part of things. And I think he really, um, he understands his identity, his program's identity and kind of what works for everybody. Um, and I, and I think he does a phenomenal job and it's, it's been cool to see. Cause when I played there, we really struggled. Um, I mean, I think my senior year, we even had an O and 11 season and then this past year they, they won the conference and you know, it's, it's just cool to see like the potential of a place be realized. And so that's, that's certainly a guy I admire. I think there's so many others that I could talk to you about, um, that I've, you know, gotten a chance to sit down with. And it, it's funny with, when it comes to coaches, like, yes, there are these big names that impress you and you see them on TV a lot, but there's just some really, really good high school coaches, um, that know the game really well. And the only reason they're not coaching power five right now is because, uh, they have a situation that works really well for their family and they're going to stay put. And so I think, uh, I, I don't know. It, it's just crazy that, that the way the football world works, there's guys that, uh, that really know the game at it's so many different places. And it, 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 those are the guys that I think are most fun to connect with. What do you make of Bruce Arians? He's got that philosophy. You know, if you miss your kid's recital or if you're missing family time, like I'll fire. Like he really, he's outspoken <laughs> about, Hey, I want, like he's kind of tongue in cheek, but he wants you to invest in your family too. Yeah. What do you make of that at the end? I've never seen that at the NFL level. Totally. Yeah. I, I think there's, it, it's probably evident that the coaches that have philosophies kind of similar to that, you rarely see people leave their staff. Mm. Uh, and that's, I just think it's a really underrated uh, aspect of football is like the ability to keep a staff together is super hard to do because if you have any level of success, guys are getting interviews and guys are getting job offers and it's really hard to keep people in place. And so I always, uh, one of my mentors always says this, he says, you know, if you're, if you ever get to a place where you're running an organization or running a company, like, you got to remember that compensation is not always monetary. Mm. Um, that that quality of life is a way that you compensate your people. And so, you know, one of the things that he always talks about is like, um, you know, one of the ways that you can show appreciation for people is you could certainly give them a raise, but you could also 
give them a week off or, you know, find other ways to show your appreciation to them um, that maybe are, are not necessarily financially tied. And I think the best coaches find ways to do that. And I know, you know, there are some, some great coaches that I, that I've talked to that they're like, look in the off season, like I trust you to get your stuff done. Like if you're not, and, and this is something Pat, Pat Fitzgerald talked about a lot. He's like, I'm not here to babysit you. Like if you, if you need to get stuff done, go get it done. Like you don't have to ask permission. Like if you can't do the job that I hired you to do, then we got a problem. But in terms of like me checking in on you and you guarding the desk and all these things, like you're, you're an adult. And, and so it's, it's just interesting. Cause I think there's a lot of coaches as football's kind of shifting, making that almost like a generational shift. You're seeing, um, you're seeing coaching staffs that can stay together and coaching staffs that can't stay together. Um, and, and that's just really interesting to me. Uh, and I think the quality of life aspect of it has a huge, uh, has a huge effect. And I think if you can find a coach to work with like that, uh, I think you see those guys stick around for a long, long time. Do you think the allure of playing or of coaching a guy like Patrick Mahomes? I mean, I know you talked to Mike Kafka and I look at Eric bien the offensive coordinator there and I go, Dude, I don't know that that Philadelphia job is really better than working with Patrick <laughs> Mahomes and winning Super Bowls. Like, do you think right. he's a real effective draw? Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing with the NFL that's probably a little bit different than some other levels of football is a lot of times what will happen is a coordinator will get a head coaching opportunity. And if it doesn't work out, they're going to be back as a coordinator. Like, there's a lot of... Um, crossover like if you're in if you're in the nfl world like you're 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 you you can stay in maybe i guess if that's the if that's yeah. the way to say it um and so i think there are some coaches that want that head coaching opportunity really badly and the reality is and this is high school college or professional if the organization is not aligned with a particular vision it has no chance for success so it, you may have a great plan, but if there's no organizational alignment, it's not going to work. Um, and, and that's just to have a chance at success because you have a bunch of organizations that are aligned that you're competing with. And so I think you see some of the more dysfunctional um, programs, both at the college and professional level, that it doesn't matter who they hire as the head coach. If they're not going to get on board with that vision, um, no one's going to have success. And so I think, you know, a coach like an Eric the enemy or a Mike Kafka can sit back and say, I'm in a really great organization working for a really great head coach. I'm able to provide for my family and it's going to take a lot for me to, to be in another opportunity. Um, and, and I know, you know, those guys are certainly deserving of, of their shot, but I think, uh, patience is probably a virtue in this sense that, um, you know, you really, you get one, maybe two shots, um, to be a head coach and do you want to waste that shot on an organization that's that's not aligned yeah you know you're, you're wearing a Houston Astros hat and I I'm the strong <laughs> opinion sports guy I don't want to sure, I don't sure, want to make sure. you I don't want to put you on a pedestal but do you think no 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 do, do you think that Texas is one of those places one of those jobs at a Houston meeting you're it's a Texas hat basically for sure for sure do you think University of Texas is one of those jobs it doesn't matter who they hire there might be some toxicity in the culture that behind the scenes Man, you know, I, I don't really know enough about about what's going on. Um, what I do know is that Mac Brown is a phenomenal leader. Um, I mean, I, I 
I got a chance to spend a little bit of time over at UNC, obviously talking to Coach Longo, but sitting in at practice. And I mean, this, I don't know how old this guy is, but he has just a presence about him. And I think he earns the respect of every single person in the room. And, you know, I think sometimes you can be a little bit of a victim of your own success in the fact that Mac Brown, I think, did such a phenomenal job at Texas that he maybe created an expectation that was maybe a little bit unrealistic, um, especially with the competition with recruiting down in Texas. And uh, he had so much success that, and let's like let's just be real about it. Like I think that Texas team with Colt McCoy, if he doesn't get hurt, we may be talking about a different dynasty. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where a play here or there, um, a shovel pass that gets picked off, like it's the difference in the trajectory of two different programs. And so, again, I think I think you can you here's the thing: you can get it right, um, but like. How many Mac Browns are there? How many Matt Campbells are there um, that that can instill that sense of we're all rowing in the same direction? Um, and, and I think those 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 particular personalities are hard to come by. Um, I I mean I I just I don't know I don't know what the the back end of of an organization looks like, but I think um, I think. I don't know. There's just, there are some leaders that can really inspire um, everybody going in the same direction, and I think you kind of need that figure to be successful at a at a major college uh, football environment. Yeah, I know someone who actually it's funny not in the football world who's a, a, a I guess in the the school side professor or dean sure. ran a, ran a yeah. program kind of thing, and they were at UNC for a long time, and they the the people they still know at UNC speak so highly of Mac Brown, like they love oh, him. Yeah. Very much. Uh, and I, I know that you're last I checked, you were in North Carolina, still living yes, there. Yes, still in um, Raleigh. Yes. Do you have an opinion on Matt Rule? Because I, I love Matt Rule. I really, totally. from what I've seen, I, I liked him at Temple. I liked how he rebuilt things at Baylor. What's your opinion on Matt Rule? I mean, Matt Rule's a, a phenomenal football coach. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I have a little bit of a background um, in, uh, so I went to Divinity School, thought I might be a, a pastor at, at one point and really felt like football is kind of more of my calling. Mm. And Matt Rule kind of has that uh, pastoral preacherly kind of quality where he, like he, he can get up there and, and he can really, he can really move people um, in the, in the way that he casts his vision in the way that he kind of inspires people and gets people on board. Um, and so I, I think he, I think he certainly has an opportunity to be, to be very successful in the long run. And I know I, I, I would imagine for a while uh, with some of his NFL ties, like he's been wanting this opportunity. Um, and it's hard to imagine someone doing a better coaching job than what he did at Baylor, particularly what they were able to do defensively. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think he certainly has everything in place to, to be successful, but here's the thing in the NFL, like the margin of error is so slim. And a lot of times like, okay, yes, Andy Reid is an absolute genius and one of the best coaches of all time, but it really helps to have Patrick Mahomes. Um, whereas you may be a, you may win your comp or you may win your division and go to the AFC championship with another quarterback, but he maybe vaults you into that premier level. And so I think Carolina's kind of probably at a point of trying to figure out like what, what that quarterback position looks like and, um, trying to find, again, there's so many good quarterbacks out there, but it's not enough to just be a good quarterback. Like you have to, you have to, there has to be some sort of elite quality, um, 
because it's I think it's really hard. Like there's such a small margin between like separating these teams. And so some of it is luck of the draw, man. I think if you can if you can find the right guys um, and stay injury free and you know have a couple breaks your way, uh, I think you can. It, that's the difference between you know seven and nine and eleven and five. There's really not that big of a difference between seven and nine and eleven and five. Yeah, Derek Carr said they were like four plays away from making the playoffs. The Raiders were last right. year. Derek, I mean, it's right. it's crazy how small football is, and I. I I'm not a religious guy, but I, I look at Matt Rule and I, I find him to be one of the most genuine guys. Like I don't For I don't sure. know if he's a good coach. I mean, I would think based on what he's done in college, he's pretty dang good. Yes. But he yeah. might fail in the NFL wins and losses wise, but as a person, I'm like, that's a dude I'd want to work for, I'd want to totally. play for. In fact, totally. a buddy of mine I played high school football with is their long snapper now, Thomas Fletcher no way. from Alabama. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and that's right. I they really it's just that that like whole from owner to coach to the way they treat people they, in that building, I look at Panthers and go, that's a place I'd want to be more than any other for place sure. in the NFL. For sure. Yeah, and, and it seems like, especially from an owner's perspective, David Tepper's really committed to creating a, a really successful uh, organization. Um, and he's pouring resources into it, too. I mean, that's that that sounds kind of silly coming from a professional team, but there are some owners that pour resources in and some that don't. Uh, some are real think, cheap man like yeah yeah i mean believe it or not there's there's you know even at that level there's guys that are willing to guys and gals that are willing to to give more or give less and so i don't know it, it'll be interesting to see i think you know i i think he's a really good coach and i think he's got a great staff put together um but it'll be it'll be interesting to see kind of how how everything shakes out because it's it's so tough to win in the nfl it's so tough I have like three more questions. I are you okay on time? I don't want to. I have gone thirty no, I'm, minutes. I'm okay, great. I'm great. Awesome. I I'm curious because you you wrote a book, and I I, I would and no matter what I was not going to let you walk without asking about this. I <laughs> I guess you wrote two of them now, and I, I I'm yeah, curious about that yeah. process because it's that is so daunting to me. The thought of putting together this whole collection of all kinds of stuff. Tell me, talk to me about writing a book. That process. Man, it was it was honestly a very transformative process for me. Uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. I've always kind of, I've always kind of been a writer, I guess, like more short form stuff. Um, mm. But I just I just really enjoy it, and football is obviously something I'm very interested in. And so, I I decided that I wanted to write a book, and the process for me was, um, was overcoming kind of that like self narrative I had of like, I'm a procrastinator. I never finish things. Like I, I'm ADD. I'm all over the place. Like how could I ever write a book? And so what I really did is I, I, I'm a big fan of Jim Collins and kind of the flywheel and good to great and different things like that. And one of the things that he talks about is like finding what, like almost going with the grain of your personality. And so for me, like something that really excites me is like discovery. Um, and so when I'm discovering new plays, like I could, write all about it but then you talk to me three or four days later and i'm like ah that doesn't really excite you move me. on i uh, move on and so trying to capture that excitement was was big for me and so you know what i ended up deciding to do with with my books was i would basically write um i would break my book down into these bite-sized chunks and so i would break uh, I would f try to find 60 to 70 case studies of plays that I thought were really interesting in a particular field and just find 60 or 70 plays that really excited me that I felt like I could write all day about. And as I would try to capture that excitement and write. 
And then I would organize those plays into modules. And so I would kind of group them together based on like similarities. And then I would, you know, kind of tie it all together. And what I found is like, I learned a lot in writing. Like I would, as I was writing, I would discover things that I'm like that, that's the same as that and find these similarities. And so it's not necessarily me sitting down to a, to a blank page and writing start to finish. It's like, it's a mosaic, you know, where I'm like finding different pieces and putting them here and there. And, um, so that, that really worked for me. I, I feel like it was kind of my flywheel. Like it just, once I got it going, it was like an un, unstoppable force and ended up writing two books in a year. Um, they were, you know, it was daunting because it's a ton of writing. Um, I think the counter book is probably like a 170 pages on counter. And then the screen books like close to 200 pages on screen. So it's like <laughs> ridiculous. Um, You're a nerd, and, dude. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Um, but, but it was so fun. Like I, I just had yeah. a blast. And so another thing Jim Collins says is he's like, if it's not fun, stop doing it. Um, uh, and that was really like meaningful to me. Cause I was like, yes, I have to get this done. But like, if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. Um, and so I just made it fun for me. And I'm like, if coaches get something out of this great. And I feel like so many coaches have, they've been really kind in reaching out and, um, you know, feeling like they can add things to their program through what I've, what I've written. And that means a lot to me. But more than anything, it was it was a process driven thing where it was like I had fun in the process. I felt like I was able to walk away with almost like an anthology for myself that I can go back to and reference back to um, throughout my coaching career. And it, in the process, if I get to help some other coaches out, that's great. So it's it was fun, man. I definitely plan to write more. Um, I may need to to slow down the the rate a little bit, but, uh, I think I've found kind of a rhythm that, that really works for me. And, and honestly, when I hit publish on that first book, um, I jokingly said to my wife, I was like, I feel like it changed my DNA. Like it was one of those things where like, I know I no longer identify as like lazy procrastinator who can't finish anything. Like, I mean, believe it or not, like we all have these like self talk, um, things that kind of run in the back of our, our minds. And I felt like this was like a step in overcoming that that kind of fallacy I had about myself. You would not know this, but my dad's written multiple books. Uh, wow. And I, I've seen that process behind the scenes, and I know it, it's just something you whittle away at over time. And yes. I write every day, and I write for my show, and it's more it, – it's almost like journaling for me where I have to start, totally. and I'll be like, today I don't want to write at all. And then I'm like, but <laughs> exactly. I have to. So I like, you know, yeah, yeah. And then the more yeah, totally. I – as I go, eventually good stuff comes out. I, I just, exactly. Once I get started, I can get going. Is that, are no, you the same without way? Without a doubt. I'm the exact same way. Yeah. You, you write to write, you know, it's like, you have to, you have to ease your way into it. And, uh, a, a fun little trick here that, that gets me unstuck is I, I write on Mac. I don't know if you're a Mac person or not, but, um, there's a little function on a Mac where you can open up a document. And I think if you hit control twice, it opens up like a dictation tab and you can just dictate. Um, and it, mm you know, captures all the words and like writes it down. And it's not perfect. It, you know, there's probably other software that's better for you. But a lot of times if I get stuck, I just pretend I'm presenting at a clinic and I'll just hit that dictation tab and start talking. And then I'll try to like clean it up and less colloquial. Um, but, but it just helps get me unstuck when I'm feeling stuck. I just kind of talk it out and try and get something on the page verbally. And, you know, it's, it's, you just find these little tricks that work for you over time. And, um, I think the biggest thing is like, like not allowing yourself to just stall out, get discouraged and, and put the pro the project down. Just say like, I'm going to keep plowing through this. And if I'm not interested, I'm going to go work on something else. And that's the nice part of not feeling like it's this linear project. It's like, 
uh, you know what? Play action slip screens like aren't that interesting to me right now. So I'm going to go right about pass screen options for a bit. And, and I get to go work on something I'm interested in. And then I can come back when I'm feeling a jolt of inspiration. Yeah, it's funny. In the content creation world, people think that like if I only made content when I was inspired, I would almost never make content. Like you, exactly. it's a choice to opt in because there are days where like, oh my gosh, it flows off the page. I have so much totally. to say and I'm so excited. And there are days where I'm like, I got to put myself into that mindset because it is a choice. It's you easier than others, but some days are, you just got to get going and get started. Yeah. Yep. Showing up every day is highly underrated. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and I, I got, I got two things left if I may. Yeah, Number yeah, one is this, and I, I want to talk about the idea of a quarterback controversy. I'm curious how you would handle it. If you had two guys who are very, very similar, very, they're both very similarly effective what beyond their play on the field, or I guess what are your deciding factors beyond just their hey, they're very similar, would help you decide a starting quarterback? <laughs> this is a good question because I think it, it very much, honestly, very much depends on how we're operating offensively. So mm. there have been years where I've been tempo, no huddle, like we, we play incredibly fast pace. And I think in that type of offense, you're looking for, um, a level of decisiveness and kind of swagger and not a kid that's not necessarily going to second guess himself. Uh, you want somebody that's going to, going to go make plays and not make, not make apologies. Uh, but if you're operating at a little slower pace and you're in the huddle a lot more, then that player is becoming much more of like a, a visual um, and auditory center for your team and so that your team is literally looking at this player as your as he he or she is calling plays like that that's really important right like you need to make sure that that person can command uh command a team and so you know i again it's it's tough to say because i think it very much depends on the the type of offense you're running and and the style that you play with um and, and your style as a coach even too i mean i've had i've had players that have kind of been a little bit more gunslinger and I like, I hate it, but I love it. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, it frustrates me, but I've also kind of encouraged them to be that. Um, and so making sure that I balance that out, but I, I think it has a lot to do with, uh, their ability to, uh, really instill confidence in their teammates. Are they able to, are they able to make other people around them better? And that's not just from a, an on the field standpoint. It's, are, is there a willingness to get on the same page with a receiver about a particular route before or after practice? Is there um, a conversation with the center happening, or is it just like him yelling at the center for making a bad snap? Uh, you know, th- those types of interactions I think are are really important. And the more that a quarterback demonstrates an ability to inspire their teammates and make them better in one way or another, uh, that's probably the the player you you end up going with ultimately. Do you ever, I guess I'm curious, is there a moment where maybe it's more about how he makes you feel like you're like, Hey, I, I just have confidence in this guy. It, whether, no matter how he, he works with the other player, the other, you know, with his teammates, there are times you're like, Hey, I just, this is the guy I trust more. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a huge, a huge part of that from a coaching standpoint of, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but the quarterback does end up being a bit of a, uh, uh it ends, the quarterback ends up being a bit of an extension of you on the field. And so one of the things that I've tried to do over the years is uh, take a little bit more of a rugby approach to coaching football. And so in rugby, you're, you're, the coaches are up in the booth like during the game. There's nobody on the field. And so they can offer very limited 
advice or insight throughout the course of a game, obviously halftime and other things like that. But I've tried to be more and more hands-off even during the game and give more autonomy to the players. And so there is an element of trust of, I don't just want you to know the plays. I want you to know a lot of the why behind, okay, why do we do this? Like when we get in the red zone, why do we, uh, why does coach have me running more when we're in the red zone than when we're in the middle of the field? Well, it's because we can get plus one in the run game. That makes sense to me. Okay. I'm, you know, if we're running tempo, I, I can call, I can call my own number, you know, in these, in these situations. And so, Again, there's like these, these, there's all these things that are going on. But for me, to have confidence in a player, a lot of times it's seeing, a, uh, seeing particularly at the quarterback position, somebody start to have confidence in themselves, and they're identifying with some of the philosophy that we've established as a team. That's a great answer. I, I really, I, I got to say, man, you've done phenomenal today. I really I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm curious. Is there anything you sh- think I should have asked you that I haven't asked you about? Is there any like thing you're like, there's right. something out there. I'm like, I, you should ask this, Zach. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, man, I. It's okay to me. No. Yeah. I, you, you've covered, you covered the, you've covered the bases, man. I think we've, we've hit on some good stuff for sure. Can I ask you a non-football question? Of course. Always. Uh, so I, I got engaged in February. Uh, yes. Wedding date is July sixteenth, twenty twenty two. Thank you, and I, I love That's your awesome. posts as as a dad and as a husband. Yeah, I really, yeah. I go like, man, that like I, I you look like you're doing great. It's Instagram, but I'm like, <laughs> I still like, it looks impressive, and I, I'm curious if you have any advice just as a dad and as a father. Yeah, man, that's that's a great question. That's uh, you know, obviously I love football, but uh, it it pales in comparison to my family. I have an amazing wife, Grace, that has helped me with so many things in my life, uh, both from professional and personal standpoint, and two amazing kids, uh, Zion and Ada, that uh, we, they're both adopted and kind of the best, best thing we have going in life right now. And we're, we're super fortunate, two and one years old, one year old. Um, and I think the biggest thing, um, the biggest, I guess, piece of advice I can, I can offer is like, you're never going to regret making decisions that have the best interests of your your wife and your kids in mind. Like, I just think mm. in life, um, making the sacrifice of family for, for other reasons is like, it, it's, it's really never worth the trade off. Like I, I always kind of take the opinion, like if I'm putting my family first, like the rest will take care of itself. Um, and so that's, that's one thing. And then also, I guess maybe like more specifically from a parenting perspective, um, this is a lesson I learned, um, the past couple of years is that, you know, Time is like quality time is obviously, you know, something everybody talks about as being really important as a parent. Um, and I, I think really, I really stress like the quality of that time. And so for me, like, obviously there's so many thoughts going on in my head and I'm working on these projects and getting up early in the morning and coaching and doing all these different things. But for me, like there's something about like being able to like ground yourself in your body, in your time that you have with your kids. And like, for me, it it literally means like sitting down on the floor with my kids and playing with them. Um, and it sounds really simple, but like, you're just, I think there's like something to like embodying that experience and not, um, not letting yourself drift off. Cause it's so easy, even with, and when you're around your kids to like jump on your phone and do all these different things. And, um, I think that what I've realized is like those bonds and connections have grown so much from literally just like sitting on the floor with them for 20 or 30 minutes and playing with them, um, and, and getting on their eye level. Like, I think that's a really big, 
a big thing for for a parent is like to literally be on an on eye level with your kids and and i think about that in a more like abstract sense with my players like what does it look like for me to get on eye level with my players um and try to understand their experience and not just come at it from kind of my ivory tower um so you know i think i think that's huge and and i think um you know what one of the things that i've learned most as as a married man is that um what you really do is like you end up in successful marriages like you bring out the best in each other um and one of the things that i've found is like my wife has in in the time that i've grown with her she has taught me a lot of things about myself that i didn't know were in there um like i don't think i ever would have been able to write a book if i hadn't learned so many things from her um and you just realize that like through that relationship you become the better version of yourself and just being willing to being willing and open to that um is is a really cool part of life because you're not no one's static no one's stuck with who they are they you're we're all evolving over the course of our lives and um the more you can evolve toward that other person the, the better off you are i love you know i, I work all the time like I literally it's my life it's like i'm trying totally. to go to bed at 10 now i'm like hey no if it's dark go to bed do it the next day and <laughs> right, i got a right. break now it's not football season thank goodness there's nothing i'm trying to beat out right now right right but right. i my fiance and i had this really good conversation it's like look you work all the time but when you're yeah. present be present like don't be yes. on your phone yeah. like don't be totally. you're, you're off in another world still like if you're yeah. ever you're gonna hang out with me like be here Totally. And I really need to hear that. And then with kids, I, I'm, I'm afraid of having kids right now as far as like I, <laughs> I'm building a business. I mean, I really, right. it's a lot. Totally. And totally. I, it's, it's encouraging to hear you say that you'll never regret prioritizing them. Because that's, I know yeah. at some point when I have kids, it's going to be something I, I have to make a shift at work a little bit. And it's yeah. just, it's good to hear. Like, I, that's something I needed to hear a lot. I'm like, ah, okay, that's awesome. I think, you know, the, there's no... I, I, I think one of the things that I would do early on is I would like postpone joy. I was like, I'm not, mm. I, I'll be happy when X, Y, or Z happens. And then I like would, I would achieve these things. And then I was like, oh man, I'm I actually don't feel much different. Um, and so one of the things that like the shifts that we've made, tried to make in our life is like capturing joy, like right there where it is. Like if, if I'm enjoying, you know, time with my kids, I'm going to like, enjoy that moment. And I'm not going to like postpone it and say like, Oh, when I have more time or when I, you know, there's, there's always these like caveats we put on things. And so, uh, trying not to postpone those things, but like really being present in the moment and enjoying the things that life has to offer us right now, I think is, is, um, highly valuable. One of the, one of the things that I always talk to my team about is, um, you know, the more you can ground yourself in the present, the happier you're going to be in your life. Like if you get if you get stuck in the past and the future a lot, like you're always going to be consumed with anxiety, and there's always going to be time to be anxious. <laughs> and so the more you can find yourself in the present moment, um, which is what we try to create with our football program, is like just to be present as much as possible. And it's I think it's a relief for for people to be present. It's like it's really nice. It's a nice change up from our modern world. <laughs> Dude, it's been really hard. I've been moving. I, I move in three weeks. I'll be living in Hawaii full time. Oh my and goodness. It's been a really but it's been months and months of preparation oh, I'm and sure. I'm sure. Like the the cats are the hard you'd never believe the cats <laughs> are so hard to get on the island and I would imagine. I'm shipping my car uh what's today Thursday tomorrow shipping my car off. Wow, wow. And it's been the hardest thing to say. I'm in, I'm in the Portland area. I'm like, no, I, it's still beautiful here. It's still green. I, I got to enjoy my walks. Like, cause I, I totally wanting to look ahead. I'm like, no, 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 you'll yeah, get there for sure. For but sure. enjoy now. And that's been yeah. so difficult. 
totally. No, that's it's it's a very hard lesson to learn, but I, I think I I'm a little bit like I I definitely studied some some philosophy in college and different things like that, and I you know try to we try to do a lot of like meditation, breath work, different things like that, and I I really struggle to stay in the present moment, but it's something I'm really working at, and um, it just it just makes life better, man. It really does. Like if you're able to do it, uh, it really it really does help a lot. Man, Dan, uh, this has been so much fun. I, I went, we went an hour basically. That was great, I, man. I loved it. I, I, me too. I, you're, a, you're a great dude. It's fun to follow you. I, uh, I'm a big fan of you. So just thank you so much for your time. I, I really, truly oh, appreciate course. it. For sure, man. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, man. I'm, I'm excited to keep following along as you get down to Hawaii. And uh, <laughs> man, that's gonna be sweet. Yeah, man, it's gonna are be you, awesome. Are, your, your, your time frame for like studying these games is probably gonna be all wacky right with the no the time i'm so glad or? monday night football is at two o'clock and oh, i'm like great <laughs> praise the lord like, you know how hard it is to do a game at like eight and you have to try to then watch it write about it get oh, it out the next man. day i'm like yeah, ah no pretty... monday night football yeah. two o'clock on monday great. get it out on tuesday <laughs> it's ah. gonna be great that is i'm so great. happy yeah man i i'm not gonna miss the time zone like i it was either gonna be i had to either be east coast so i'm, I'm totally. happening as things happen or yeah i'm i'd rather just be way behind and i was like totally on the west coast you're just in the middle and it's no benefit you're just kind of right, never right. on time or early you're always late <laughs> yeah. you're just kind of weird and <laughs> totally nah, totally that's awesome all right man. man well dan thank you so much i appreciate it of course man good good to meet you and uh, i'm sure we'll stay in touch absolutely okay i hope you enjoyed my conversation with coach dan casey uh, now let's move on to Ask Zach, my favorite part of the show. It's where I answer questions from the audience. In case you do not know how it works, go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Shomler. You give a dollar a month. You can give more if you want to. Please do. It literally helps pay my rent. But a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. My only guarantee is that I guarantee to look at every single question with my eyeballs i do not guarantee to read it on the show uh, but i look at every single one i answer as many as i can uh, and if you send me a direct message on patreon i will reply like i really work hard to respond to people and be engaged on patreon uh, but if you ask a bad question i'm not going to guarantee i'll read it so i don't guarantee to read your question i answer as many as i can let's jump into question number one it's uh it's one of those ones i almost didn't answer it's from a guy named jeez <laughs> It's funny, I know who this person is behind the scenes. I'm not going to out their real name. Uh, his screen name goes by Biggest, <laughs> Biggest, B-U-B-I, sorry, B-I-G-G-U-S, Dickus. Biggest Dickus, which I, hey. He, you now, he says, who is your favorite baseball player of all time, and why is it Ichiro? And so, Mr. Biggest, I got to tell you. Uh, I had a weird reaction when I read this. First of all, I, I, my, my gut reaction went one way. Then I was like, well, I know this person. They're a nice human being. They wouldn't do that. But my, I got to be honest. Like, I had this like, guttural reaction that was negative. I was like, ah, this person's telling me what to do. They're telling me my favorite person needs to be, fa- my favorite baseball player needs to be Ichiro. And I almost didn't read it. I was like, wait, that's ridiculous. And then I was also like, well, and they're also right. Like, because it is Ichiro. My favorite baseball player growing up uh, and of all time is, in fact, Ichiro Suzuki, the former Seattle Mariners right fielder, uh, played in New York or the Yankees, played with the Marlins. He will always be a Mariner to me. Uh, I was a Mariners fan as a kid. I watched every single game with my grandpa for like like a seven-year period. I watched every single game. 
Uh, Ichiro always struck me as incredibly classy. I mean, him and Shohei Otani, say what you want about these guys, man. I They they really, truly seem to like enjoy the game. They're respectful. Uh, you see moments of Shohei Otani where, and I guess I'm just, I hate to say it, they're, they're Japanese, so I'm lumping them together, I guess. But are you there's a language barrier there. But even still, you can see there's a smile. They really genuinely like baseball. They're respectful. Like Shohei almost hit a batter the other day and went my bad and was smiling and very low key. And Ichiro was a very similar, had a very similar manner where Ichiro was just a guy, fun loving, clearly not malicious, ever very respectful. Nobody had a bad thing ever to say about Ichiro. And then also, oh yeah, by the way, he was incredibly, incredibly talented. He could hit. He could. He was a great fielder. I remember there's a great uh, video of him just hosing down somebody from right field all the way to third base, just like a throws a guy out like it's nothing. Um, I, I'll never. I mean, he just so easily hit base hits like it was just nothing. And he had that style where he pulled the ball like he kind of pulled his body through, so he was kind of running as he hit it. You know how many infield singles I watched Ichiro hit as a kid? Where you're like, he's just. He's so good at getting out of the box because of what his style where he pulls the ball in and he's like running as he hits it. And then he's just so fast. And I watched Ichiro get so many infield singles in my lifetime. I'm like, that's just unbelievable. Um, I'll never forget when he hit that inside the park grand or I guess home run. Inside the park home run in the All-Star game in San Francisco with Ken Griffey Jr. in, in right field. And it, the ball took a weird bounce and Ichiro got an inside the park home run. Like, oh, actually, easily. And Joe Buck, for whatever reason, didn't get excited. You're like, Joe Buck, are, are you, do you have any desire to have any joy at all when you watch baseball? But Joe Buck is so like, I don't, I never understand. I, I never, I've always been very, very kind to Joe Buck until I went back and watched that video the other day. And I'm like, man, he really doesn't get excited. And, and then I, you listen to like the radio broadcast of the same exact play. And the guy's like, Ichiro, he rounds second, he rounds third. This is unbelievable. Like he actually, I, and I like watching sports when broadcasters genuinely care and they get excited. Like that does make sports better. And so shame on Joe Buck. Uh, now, here is the last thing I want to say about Ichiro. It's probably, man, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen that he did. And it's probably like the, if I had to pick one story about Ichiro to say, Here's this guy in a nutshell. I will never forget when the Seattle Mariners were losing to the New York Yankees, two to one, bottom of the ninth inning, two outs. Uh, it's again, it, it's the Yankees have two runs, the Mariners have one run. There's a runner on second base. Ichiro is at the plate, and pitching is the New York Yankees closer, Mariana Rivera. And remember, Mariana Rivera was the first player ever unanimously voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is a legendary, legendary closer, one of the best ever to do it. And each row steps up to the plate and hit a walk-off home run off of Mariano Rivera. That is how good Ichiro was, is he he beat Mariano Rivera. Like, he, he took down a giant walk-off home run Bottom of the ninth, two outs. And it's just like, and Ichiro was not a home run hitter. Like, that's not historically, he had base hits almost all the time. I think he had more power than he let on. I think he would often, I would love, if I could ask Ichiro one question in my lifetime, it would be, hey, Ichiro, how often were you trying to hit a base hit? And how often did you hit home runs when you were trying to hit home runs? Because I feel like 
almost every time he tried to hit a home run where he tried to really pull the ball into right field, he did. So I, I just would love to know like, how often was Ichiro simply just trying to get an easy base hit because I felt like any time he wanted that home run, he got it. Uh, but yeah, Ichiro is in fact my favorite baseball player of all time. Uh, not only is it nostalgic, it's good memories, but he also was classy, incredibly talented. He's a Hall of Famer and... I mean, he took down a giant. He took down Mariano Rivera. That's a story I will never, ever forget. He had so many cool moments like that. And uh, I still, to this day, like get a special feeling when I watch Mariners games. I'm bitter. I'm angry. But I, I look back at Unieski Betancourt, Raul Abanez, Adrian Beltre, uh, Ichiro, Richie Sexton, uh, J.J. Putz. I, there, there was a fun squad there, and I... I, I fond memories of my grandpa. He, he's gone now, but I, I really loved my grandpa when he was alive. And uh, I I'll always remember watching Mariners games with him. It was just such a blast. Okay, Jeffrey writes in. Uh, he says, what's one thing you'll miss about Portland? I saw your Instagram story about how bad the city has been, but I was curious if there were one or two redeemable qualities or things that you'll miss about living there. So, yeah, uh, in three weeks, I'm moving to Hawaii. And I'm very excited. I, I actually, I, I think people don't understand. I'm saving money by going there. Like we're we're getting a 400 square foot apartment. Uh, it's our utilities are cheaper. Our internet is faster and cheaper. It's pretty unbelievable. I think we got maybe, I mean, we're like we're in an awful apartment that's like falling apart. It's like a terrible apartment. But, but, I don't need much. I, I need a place to record, and I can walk to the beach. And that's all I need. And so like. I, a, I'm really excited to go to Hawaii. Now, what am I going to miss about living? I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I now live in Vancouver, Washington, which is about 10 minutes outside of Portland. It's a it's a suburb across the river of Portland. And so I go to Portland a couple times a week. I, uh, I live in Portland, basically. And uh, I, I guess what I'm going to miss about here, this area, is – and I'm going to give you two honorable mentions and then say my actual answer – so two honorable mentions. I'm going to miss my family. And although I will be honest, I, I, I'm not going to miss them as much as I, I probably should. I feel kind of guilty about that. I, I really like seeing people on a scheduled time frame. I don't like impromptu stuff. Like people are like, hey, you want to hang out tomorrow? And I'm like, I'm busy. I'm recording like a show and I have to watch sports. And like I, I like working. I want to work all the time. And so it'll be nice to see family at a time where – I'm taking a week off of work. I'm flying home for like a week, and I it's scheduled time, which was way more manageable for me. Even with my family, I'm a big introvert. I really don't like seeing people. I, I know that sounds terrible, but I'm a guy who I stay home. I work. I'm very quiet. I'm very, very much a hermit, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm probably like the most introverted person you'll probably ever meet or come across in your life. I'm very, very, I'm very self-sustaining. I'm very happy. Uh, I can go days without seeing other people and be like just happy as a climb. In fact, I'm not even struggling. I'll just be enjoying that. So I wish I, I feel I'm going to miss my family and it's going to be weird not being close to my dad. Uh, but I, it will be nice to see them on a scheduled time frame and not be expected to go to dinners and get together some birthday parties and stuff. I don't, I hate going to gatherings of like 10 people or more. It's just, it's not for me. And I, I feel so bad admitting that, but it is true. So I, I'll miss my family, kind of, uh, but it's not like I'll never see them again. I'll see them probably twice, three, four times a year. That's plenty for me. Um, I'm going to miss summer, kind of, but summer, is, you know, I'm moving from a place that has summer for like two to three months out of the year 
to Hawaii where it's summer or spring year round. I mean, you really it's really spring in Hawaii all the time. So uh, I yeah, I, I mean, uh, summers here are amazing. It's summer in Portland, Oregon, in the Northwest in general. It's beautiful. The other nine months of the year, uh, I'm miserable. It's raining. It's cold. I don't like it. I can't swim outside. It's it's dreary and not cool. So I'm not really going to miss. Um, I got, I'll miss summer here, but I'm going somewhere with eternal summer, basically. Now, the one thing I will miss, the, here's the thing I will miss the most about Portland. And it's not it's not the city. <laughs> it's not the, the food. I, mean, I think there's better food in Hawaii, actually. Um, but what I'm going to miss a lot is that feeling of when you walk in the woods in the fall. And I, it's, it's actually, it's kind of sad. I haven't really experienced a, like a fall where the leaves are changing and the, it's, the leaves are orange and there's some rain in the air and it's, you know, very humid, but cool, like, you know, 49, 50 degrees. I haven't experienced that in like three or four years because of, you know, I work during football season. I, and pretty much just constantly busy during the NFL season or either that or I was playing college football or working for college football. So I really haven't had like a hike in the woods in like Forest Park in Portland or Oxbow Park or Mount Hood or Mount St. Helens in like four years. But that's if you can ever come to Portland, Oregon during fall and you get outside, you wear like a flannel. It's you don't need anything more because it's not that cold. You just need something for your arms, and you get moving a little bit. There's some light sun. Maybe it's dark. Maybe it's not. But the smell of wet and dead leaves is just like this. I can't explain it. It's this smell that really, really does permeate everywhere. It's this earthy, wet smell that is just beautiful, and I I really, really do appreciate a good hike in the fall. There's something about that, that kind of cold, kind of wet, it, it like smushy, like the the moss is all green. It's just like I really, really love fall here, and I I don't like it very much because I get cold very quickly. But I will miss that ability to go just go outside in the fall whenever I want to. But again, I, I'm busy in the fall. Like I don't really enjoy falls anyway. So I guess if I want to experience a fall, I'll just travel to it. I'll go home for like a week or something. So I. I don't know. I, I, I'm really not going to miss very much about Portland. But to answer your question, like those are the things I'll miss. I'll miss my family. I will miss uh, summer kind of and I'll miss uh, fall. Fall is an irreplaceable thing that Hawaii does not have. OK, uh, Joshua writes in. And by the way, I want to be clear. Like I'm, I am so. Hawaii is a dream I've had since I was eight years old and I, I never, ever thought it was possible. And let me tell you, it is not easy um, living paycheck to paycheck, basically. Like I, I'm really going out on a limb to try to make this happen. But for me, it's life is too short to not try and go for the things I really want in life and go enjoy my life and go be where I want to be and invest in the place I want to invest in. And I, I just, I don't know. I, when my brother died six years ago now, 20, 2016. So that's five years ago. Um, it really made me it reminded me of how short life is and that there's nothing guaranteed and uh for all i know i'm going to get in a car accident and die tomorrow but if i die tomorrow i'll tell you hey i i lived a life i loved i loved my job i loved where i was headed i loved my plan and if i stayed here for another year where i really don't want to be 
when I really, with all my being, want to be in Hawaii, I'd, I'd regret that. I'd be like, man, I wasted a year. I really didn't go where I wanted to go, and I feel called there, and I just feel like I'm going to make it happen. So, um, and that's the background I haven't really talked about on this show about Hawaii is that I just, it's been a lifelong dream of mine that I never thought was possible that when you juggle enough and you sacrifice enough, anything really is possible. And I was like, we can just live in a tiny apartment and have nothing. And I, that sounds worth it to me to live where I really love. So I'm rambling now, but I, I couldn't feel better about everyone has an opinion on where I'm moving and what I'm doing and you shouldn't go there. I'm like, no, I'm doing what's best for me. And it's something I've wanted my whole life. And I, I honestly never thought I would get to do. So uh, I could not be more grateful, more happy. And uh, I, I'm just so excited to move. Okay. Joshua writes in, he says, Hey Zach, I'm brand, I'm a brand new patron uh, patron and I'm stoked to be a part of this community. Joshua, welcome. Thank you. He says, let me first say that I loved the hard PG-13 we got towards the end of last episode, it felt authentic and not contrived at all. Fuck yeah. Hey, let me tell you. Uh, that is me. Like, I I cuss a lot, actually, in real life. Go to a bar with me someday. Uh, <laughs> I, dude, I, I, I really do get, I don't know. That's, that's authentically who I am. Go listen to uh, the Flawed Humans podcast on my other YouTube channel or just go find it on Spotify, Flawed Humans podcast. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a very, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a very free flow in person when it comes to cuss words. Uh, I just try not to be on this show because I feel like all it does is alienate people and make people feel unwelcome. So I, I just try to be sensitive to that, to, to make it the show appeal to as many people as possible. You'll never miss a cuss word, but you might feel like it is unnecessary. And so I just, I'm like, ah, let's avoid him completely. Anyway. Joshua continues, he said, something that I have always admired about you is that you stay independent. It's so hard to cut it in entertainment without the backing of a big network. That said, as someone who has had uh, an independently produced podcast with about 2,000 listeners, when did you feel like you could turn your passion into a viable career? Also, how did you grow your audience without the benefit of having a big network? Love your sports stakes, but what I love most is that you do it all yourself. There are lots of us independent creators who need good examples of how to be successful without selling out. Thanks for reading this with your eyeballs, Josh. Joshua, thank you. Uh, I got a lot to say about that, actually. Um, first of all, let me say I'm one of my most proud accomplishments in my life, and it's going to sound like a brag. I guess it is. I really am proud of this. I absolutely effing hate gambling. And I let me tell you, it is really hard to succeed in the sports media world if you don't embrace gambling because there's so much especially when you're a youtuber or a podcast host you ever listen to a podcast in the sports world they're like all sponsored by DraftKings and FanDuel and I I hate those companies they're awful and I I don't like gambling if you like gambling great for you that's awesome I don't feel any desire to promote gambling I've seen it ruin people's lives I I am very jaded towards it i know people who have lost everything and i i've no desire to promote that or tell other people hey you should go gamble i'm like dude your money's better spent in so many other ways so i it's a really it's something that really makes me angry actually about the way major major figures in the sports world so flippantly promote gambling i'm like this is just not this is not ethical to me and i've stuck by that it's cost me a lot of money um, but I, I have that standard. I'm not, I, it's, it's ethics to me. It, it feels wrong to promote gambling. I'm not going to do it. Uh, I, I hope, 
I hope if you love gambling, like you respect that, because I don't, I don't, I don't love gambling, and I certainly think if you, if you're in my camp, you really respect that. I, I've turned down money to to not do that. Now, um, I guess to answer your question, Joshua, I always believed I could turn this into a career. I maybe it was naive, actually. I was like, I, I literally took out a loan to go to college because I knew that the loan could pay for my dorm room which would allow me to build my show. This was always my plan. I always just from the I knew from the beginning I can make this happen if I work hard enough at it, sacrifice enough. Uh, and then once I, you know, I was playing college football, I was having a really bad experience. I I pivoted away from college football. I was going to transfer actually, and then I was like, well, I'm making enough money to live paycheck to paycheck to rent a place myself and I I I was I I just I burned out on playing football. And I was really frustrated. It was just a not a good experience at the end. I'm like, you know what? I can do this. I and I, I just was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a leap of faith. I really wish I made more, but I can. I just feel like people don't understand how much they can sacrifice to make it until they have to do it. And you can cut a lot of stuff out of your life to survive. And I was like, I I can make this happen. I can make it work. And I did. And here we are. And um, I guess you know my number one priority. Like, how did I grow? How did I make the show bigger? I'm not that big of a show. My, like, my strong opinion of sports is pretty small in, in the scheme of things, in my opinion. I I look at other people that do what I do, and they have more. Like, a lot more and a lot bigger. And I, uh, I think, to some degree, people make very quick reactionary content that is less thoughtful. And I, I mean, I try to be... Quick, like I try to make stuff. Like if if a big trade happens tomorrow, I'll try to record about that as quickly as I can. But I'm not going to rush out a topic about it just to make to- uh, content. You know what I mean? I, I try to make quality, and I my number one priority has always been that if I, I really believe if I make quality content, that can be my draw. And I, I I put that number one is I have to make content that I like that's quality. And I'm never going to make content I don't like, and I'm never going to make content that I don't believe in. And the minute I do that, I have sold out. I I, I just don't um, – I, I just can't I, – I love my job. I work way too much to do it in a way that I don't like. And so that's why I cover the NBA. That's why I cover baseball. That's why I cover Formula One. I know that that's not what the majority of my audience wants to hear. I, I apologize that there's not that, but I, I have to make content I like too, and I, I hope people like that. And I, I actually look at a guy um, – I, I should not – I, I probably will get in trouble for referring to him. But lover, PewDiePie is a very, 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 very controversial YouTuber. And I, I for, for very self-explanatory reasons. However, I, I think as a creator, you have to admire what he's done because he started doing video games and only video games. And like was a like a Minecraft YouTuber at one point. And then what he decided to do is, hey, I, I want to make what I like. And he pivoted and became more than just that. And now he's massive and, you know, the biggest, if not T, did T-Series beat him? I don't know. I don't remember the battle. I don't follow PewDiePie, but I do remember watching him from afar going, he made one thing and then he's decided to pivot and make what he believed in, even if it's not what everybody wanted from him. And I really respected that. And I, I, I'm never going to make, like, I'm always going to make sports content. I'm never going to stop making football content. Like, that's not what I would do. But I'm, if I want to make F1 content, I'm going to do that because I, I have a passion for that and I, I feel a need to do that. And I, if I didn't cover the NBA Finals, it would feel disingenuous because I'm watching it. And I, 
absolutely love it. It's so fun. And so I I have to share what's on my heart too. And I I guess that's I I hope that's my selling point is that this show is authentic, it's genuine, it's quality every time. And I never make any video or topic or episode that I don't believe in, I don't believe is high quality. So Joshua, I, I that's a lot. I hope I answered your question and I I do encourage you if you're out there, like you you can chase your dreams. I remember I used to sleep under my desk in college and it was a room small. I lived in a room smaller than the room I'm recording in now. And my bed was against the wall when I recorded. And then when I wasn't recording, I, I pulled it off of the wall, slid it under my desk. And I used to sleep under my desk literally with like three feet of clearance above me. So um, you can sacrifice more than you think. It's worth it. And go chase your dreams. I cannot encourage that enough. Okay, Gabe wrote in with a weird one. Gabe, I'm not going to lie. Never heard a question like this before. He said, hey, Zach, it feels like there is a bad stigma against having your favorite character be the main character. What are your thoughts on it? I always found the dumb... I always found the dumb... Well, I always found this a dumb stigma. Is a a typo there. I'm going to leave it in. But maybe I'm biased because typically my favorite character is the main character also... Is your favorite character typically a main character or a side character? Or do you not really have favorite characters? Love your vids, Gabe. Gabe, love you, man. Uh, I have never heard anybody, you know, kind of say there's... I've never heard of a stigma against having the main character be your favorite character. Um, I watch Jack Reacher, or I, in fact, I read the Jack Reacher novels because... I love Jack Reacher, right? And I I watch Batman for Batman. I don't watch Batman for Robin. I watch Batman because I like Batman. I watch Bosch because I like the main character, Harry Bosch, Amazon Prime. Great show. I watch Iron Man for Iron Man. I watch Sherlock Holmes for Sherlock Holmes. I watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I like Buffy. She's a great character, right? Like, so... I've, I've, I've honestly, Gabe, I've never heard of this. And if, if there is anybody out there giving you crap for liking the main character of a TV show or a book or a movie, like, that's that's weird. And I don't – you should never feel guilty. Like, the reason why Jack Reacher movies are made is because Jack Reacher is awesome and the TV series is going to be fun. And so I, if there's any stigma, I, I've never heard of it, and I certainly would reject it if I was you. Final question of the day comes from Landon. Very short. I guess not really much sports in this. Is it? Were there any sports in this? There wasn't really, were there? Well, I should have warned you guys at the beginning. I apologize. All these questions are about non-sports stuff. But hey, if you're here, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm glad you're still listening. I talked about football for like an hour with Dan Casey, so enjoy that. Um, Landon says, question, explore the deep ocean or explore outer space. And for me, it's it's space, like 100,000 million percent. Uh, I, I'm way more curious about what's out there in the infinite space than there I am about the bottom of the ocean. Uh, are there probably weird ruins at the bottom of the ocean? Like, maybe. Um, you know what I'm really more interested in? I think Atlantis is in, like, what's that country? Let me look it up. There's a country in Africa that's all a desert now. I think it's called Western Sahara. It's called, let me look. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Um, Morocco, Mauritania. Maybe it's Mauritania. Either way, uh, Mali. Maybe it's Mali. Anyway, one of these countries, Mali 
Western Sahara, Mauritania, Morocco. I don't think it's Algeria. There, somewhere in the Western Sahara Desert is like ruins of a ring or two. And the theory is that that area is the lost city of Atlantis. And it sounds crazy because we all thought Atlantis fell in the ocean. Now, there is, you know, a lot of evidence of flooding there. But that's how we don't realize how much the planet can change with climate change. I mean, um, the, the belief is that Mesopotamia, which is like the Middle East now, uh, was once very fertile, green, and even tropical. And then when you raise the temperature, even 10 degrees, that can go from tropical to desert. If Hawaii was 10 degrees warmer on average, it would be a desert rather than a tropical paradise. If if Portland was 10 degrees hotter, I mean, we saw Portland, everything died like two weeks ago when we it was 115 degrees. So uh, there's a great video. I think it's by, let me look, I sent it to my buddy Elijah. I'm going to evangelize this video everywhere. The video is called, um, how Earth's geography will change with climate change. It's by Real Life Lore, I believe. I'm looking at it's the windmill. I think it's Real Life Lore. And the, the thumbnail says, what happens if Earth gets four degrees warmer? That's four degrees Celsius. So how, again, you should watch this video if you're out there. How Earth's geography will change with climate change. And when you realize that, you go, oh my gosh, there there probably is all kinds of stuff buried in the Sahara Desert and uh, under mountains, like in, I think in Romania, there's stuff literally under mountains. I sound like I'm a crazy person, but um, archaeology is way more interesting to me than going to the bottom of the ocean. Now, to sound even more like a crazy man, uh, I'm all in on aliens because it's fun to believe in aliens. Like, a, 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 if nothing else, it's a fun thought. And like my fiance, aliens terrify her, so she pretends they don't exist and they're not real. Um, but I, I, the thought that there's other life out there kind of excites me. I'd love to know. Uh, so I would give anything to get on a spaceship and go explore space. Like, you know, if I could go to another planet and walk around, I'm there in a heartbeat. And so, yeah, Landon, hope that answers your question. It's a very roundabout way to answer all that. Uh, look up Atlantis in the Sahara Desert and then watch that video I, I said. It, then I'm gonna, I said the title like a bunch of times. Look up climate change, how it affects Earth, real life lore, something like that. You'll find it. And uh, yeah, it'll scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. And will make you realize that you might not want to have kids. Because <laughs> you're like, are we headed towards like cataclysmic disaster? Maybe. But I don't know. It doesn't help to avoid that stuff. I really, I think about climate change and then I talk about sports for a living and I go, well, does this matter? And it doesn't matter, but that's why I talk about it. That's why you listen to it and probably should talk, stop talking about real life stuff because you listen to this because you want to get away from that kind of stuff and focus on sports. Anyway, uh, I'm going to stop rambling. I hope I answered all your questions the best way I could. And uh, I, truly, like, I love you guys. I appreciate you very much. I... Uh, I love doing Ask Zach. It's very honest and it's very much me. So anyway, love you. Appreciate you. Have a great day. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are done.